Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah أشهد أن سيدنا محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن سيدنا محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة أحول الرقبة إلا بالله إن الحمد لله إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا محمدا عبده ورسوله يقول الله جل وعلا في كتابه الكريم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم 
وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أعاذنا الله وإياكم منها أجمعين أما بعد Dear brothers and sisters Al-Sahabi Al-Jareel the noble companion known as Sahibu Sirri Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam the holder of the Prophet's secret the Sahabi known as Sayyiduna Hudayfa ibn Yaman radiyallahu anhu a couple of weeks ago in one of the khutbas we mentioned a very important narration from him he was known as Sahibu Sirri Rasulillah, the holder of the Prophet's secret, because he was entrusted with the names of the hypocrites, as well as lots of information regarding the coming fitan, trials, tribulations, and strife. In a very important narration, Sayyidina Hudayfa ibn Yaman radiallahu anhu said, كان الناس يسألون النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الخير وَكُنْتُ أَسْأَلُهُ عَنِ الشَّرِّ مَخَافَةً أَنْ يُدْرِكَنِي The people, he said, used to ask the Prophet ﷺ about the good things. But I would ask him about evil things. Why? He said, مَخَافَةً أَنْ يُدْرِكَنِي For fear of those things catching me. And last week, we spoke about tawfiq divine success and grace and we said that the scholars have defined tawfiq as allah not entrusting you to yourself so to better understand tawfiq we should also take the approach of sayyidina hudayfa radiyallahu ta'ala anhu in learning not just what tawfiq is but learning about its opposite khudlan the denial of tawfiq the opposite of tawfiq, which is divine success and enabling grace from Allah, its opposite is known as khudlan or istidraj or imhal. There are different terms used both in the Quran and in the prophetic sunnah. In Surah Al-Qalam, we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this reality. He says, فَذَرْنِي وَمَنْ يُكَذِّبُ بِهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ سَنَسْتَدْرِجُهُمْ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ So leave me to those who reject this message. We will gradually draw them to destruction in ways they cannot comprehend. سَنَسْتَدْرِجُهُمْ استدراج Being gradually led bit by bit to destruction. In the very next verse in Surah Al-Qalam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأُمْلِي لَهُمْ إِنَّ كَيْدِي مَتِينَ He says, I only delay their end for a while, but my planning is flawless. In these verses, dear brothers and sisters, Allah uses the word istidraj. Istidraj is that gradual luring to destruction where a person receives more and more blessings which they use not to obey Allah 
but they use the blessings they keep getting and they use them to disobey Allah. They use the blessings to go deeper and deeper into sin and transgression and in heedlessness, ghafla. Another word that we use for this is imhal. And imhal is to be forsaken and to be left by Allah Ta'ala to get worse and worse over time. To not receive the tawfiq from Allah Ta'ala to use the blessings for good. To not get the tawfiq from Allah Ta'ala to turn to Him in repentance, in seeking forgiveness, and in living one's life as they should. Now it was the way of the early Muslims to always combine deep shukr, deep gratitude for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings with fear that those blessings might in fact be a form of istidraj. So a person in the early generations from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un among the righteous, they would be thankful for the blessings of Allah Ta'ala, while at the same time, they had a fear, they had a worry that those blessings might also be a form of istidraj if they're not careful. Something that's a blessing on the surface, but which is leading them bit by bit into heedlessness and ultimately to destruction. It is related that when Islam spread into the Persian territories during the reign of Sayyidina Umar bin Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and as the Muslim ummah became very, very wealthy due to the collapse of the Persian empire and the influx of great wealth, it is recorded that as that wealth was coming in, that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Akhsha an yakuna istidraja. I am worried, I am fearful that this great influx of wealth might in fact be a form of istidraj that leads us further and further away from what is truly of value, leading us into heedlessness. So we say that the opposite of tawfiq, of divine success, is khudlan, to be abandoned, to be forsaken, to be left on one's own. What is the nature of that khudlan, dear brothers and sisters? Picture a man who comes into great wealth and who attains great power and authority, but he is a tyrant. He is abusive towards others. He is a fraud. He is a cheat. He is someone who neglects the rights of Allah Ta'ala and the rights of human beings. He has been given strength. He has been given influence, power, and money, but it's all for zulm. It's all for oppression. It doesn't make him better. All of these things he receives make him worse. That is khudlan. Where that person with great power, great wealth, great authority, but who was a tyrant, were he to die as a baby, it would have actually been better for him. In the big picture, it would have been better for him. Because he was given all of the tools he needed to live a life of justice and goodness. But the events of his life took him to the dark side. And all of his power, his wealth and authority 
led him deeper and deeper into sin and transgression, making it worse for him ultimately at the time of death and in the hereafter. It would have been better for him if he never received any of these things. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always reminds us of his blessings in the Qur'an. And he also reminds us that these blessings are things for which we will be asked about. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, On that day you will most certainly be asked about blessings. You're not just asked about your sins and your faults. You're asked about the blessings and what you did with them. So Allah reminds us of this. And our ulama, our scholars tell us that the outpouring of blessings, and I say blessings between quotation marks, and it what appears as blessings. The scholars say that the outpouring of blessings in one's life is not a proof that a person is upon good. This is why our mashayikh, they say that if someone says, Alhamdulillah, my life is very easy and I have never encountered any misfortunes whatsoever. The mashayikh, they say that if someone says that, they should be told to check their iman. Check their iman because the ulama say that the sulaha, the righteous people of the past, would wait for a test, wait for a bala after every blessing. Because that is the nature of the mu'min. The Prophet wasallam says, عَجَبًا لِأَمْرِ mu'min." How astounding is the affair of the believer. When something blesses him, he's grateful. And when something is testing him, he's afflicted with something, he is patient. Everything revolves around sabr and shukr. We're always facing those situations. So if a person says, I've had life on easy mode, I've never been tested, I've never suffered any misfortunes, any stress, any problems, they should check their iman. That might be istidraj. In the hadith recorded by Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi, he mentions a narration that the Prophet ﷺ was offered by one of the angels to transform them, um, some mountains into gold. Imagine if you had the opportunity for a mountain to be turned into gold for you. This offer was given to the Prophet ﷺ. But what was his response? His response was to decline the offer. Instead, he said, I rather be fed one day and thank Allah and then go hungry another day so I can beg of Allah. Bayna sabri wa shukr, between patience and gratitude. The Prophet wasallam also told us, Ashaddu nasi bala'an al-anbiya fal-amthal fal-amthal. The most intensely tested people are the prophets. And then those who are most like them, and then those who are most like them. So their test, dear brothers and sisters, their misfortunes and challenges are not a proof that they were not good. Because we know that they are the most intensely tested of people. Likewise, the person who receives a blessing and great good in this world, in the material realm, none of that is a proof that they are good. 
If having the riches of the world is proof that a person is good, then the wealthy tyrants would be the best of humanity. And if having tests and difficulties were proof that a person is bad, then the prophets would be the worst of humanity. And that's obviously false. So the test that you receive in life is not necessarily a punishment. And the quote-unquote blessings and good things that come to our life are not necessarily uh, true blessings in the sense that they lead us to Allah's pleasure. It all depends on how they are used. Being tested in this life is not a proof that Allah is displeased with you. Just like having blessings in the material sense is not necessarily a proof that Allah is pleased with you. We are Muslims. We don't believe in the so-called prosperity gospel of some Christian denominations who say that for you to have material wealth is the proof that you are beloved to God. That is a shaitani theology to believe that. Imam al-Hakim, he records in his mustadrak a very frankly scary hadith. It's a scary hadith because of what it tells us. It mentions that the companion Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu once went to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said, Ya Rasulullah, Wallahi inni uhibbuk. He said, O Messenger of Allah, I really, truly, deeply love you. He's expressing this out of sincerity. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Unzur, in kunta sadiqan fa'idda lil faqri tajfafa. He said, Consider very well what you are saying. Consider, pay attention to what you're really saying here. Because if you are truthful in saying that you deeply love me, then prepare for poverty as a steed, as a horse prepares for battle when the armor is put on it. Prepare for poverty, because poverty comes to those who truly love me quicker than a torrent of water reaches its limit. That's the reality. A person once went to a righteous man and said, Ya Sheikh, I want to be like you. I want to follow the path of taqwa and salah, of righteousness and piety. So that pious man said to him, I give you the glad tidings of tests, of difficulties. So difficulties and tests, your brothers and sisters, having challenging times in our lives, are not evidence of khudlan, of being forsaken by Allah Ta'ala. Just as material blessings are not necessarily proofs of tawfiq. Khudlan, being forsaken, can be in blessings that distract a person from living their true purpose. As Imam Sahal ibn Abdullah al-Tustari once said, it's like the person giving the baby a rattle. The baby is whining and crying, and you give the baby a rattle to silence it. So it's playing with the rattle. It's distracted by the rattle. So it's given to that baby to shut it up. That's it. So a person may be given all of these things in the world, like a baby is given a rattle. It's not a proof that they are pious. It's not a proof that they're beloved to God. It's not a proof that Allah loves them. 
In fact, it could be otherwise. It could be that Allah gives them now because they get nothing else in the hereafter with Iyadu Billah. So the question we have to ask ourselves, dear brothers and sisters, is knowing the opposite of tawfiq, divine success, what we call khudlan, or being forsaken and left to our own devices, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do people do to receive that khudlan? Why is it that some people are forsaken? Why is it that some people experience this istidraj? where they get all the good things in life, one thing after the other, but it makes them worse and worse over time. And the answer is very simple. The answer, dear brothers and sisters, as for why people receive istidraj and khudlan, is that it's due to their sins. Al-ma'asi wa intihak al-muharramat ila akhiri. Disobedience, sins, transgression, and so on and so forth. And that's because... There's a very important principle we have to understand as Muslims. And that principle states that a good deed gives rise to another good deed. A good deed engenders another good deed, which gives rise to another good deed, and so on. Likewise, a sin leads to another sin. And that sin leads to another sin. In Arabic, they call this istihkam. And you do one thing, it makes it easier the next time around. Right? So we can take a contemporary example. Many people are on diets. They want to lose some weight. And so they adopt a diet, a very strict regimen. Maybe they decide they're going to cut out sugar entirely from their diet. Very challenging. So they're on this diet. And as they're on this diet, maybe one day they decide, you know, today I'm going to have a cheat meal. I'm going to have a cheat meal just this one time. Or maybe they don't intend to have a cheat meal at all, but they're in a social gathering and there's sweets and desserts. And so they succumb to the temptation and they have that one craving and they say to themselves, yeah, I'm on this diet, but here I am. I want to make my host happy. So I'll just have this one cookie. Or maybe they're at home and the family brings some cookies. They're not on the diet, but you are. And you say, you know, I'll just have this one cookie. This, just this one cheat today. What often happens is that after that one cookie, they feel, okay, I've kind of fallen off the diet. I had one cookie. I might as well have the other cookies in the box. I might as well have the rest. They're, I mean, they're there. And I already had one. What's the problem with having a second one? Or a third? Or a fourth? Or the whole box? And before you know it, what became a cheat meal or a minor temptation they succumbed to with one cookie, it became a whole box. Then it became a pie. Then it became the ice cream in the freezer. And that's one day. Maybe it happened on a Thursday or a Friday and they say, you know, I've kind of fallen off. I'm having a hard time at work. I'm stressed. Maybe I'll just have some more goodies today. And let's see, it's Friday. I'll start my diet again on Monday. I'll start fresh on Monday. What often happens is the cheat day or the one cheat meal leads to a cheat day. And the cheat day leads to a cheat weekend. Then the cheat weekend leads to a cheat week. And they say, I'll get back on my diet next week. But maybe they don't even get back on the diet for another month or two or three or four, if ever. This happens a lot to people. Why does it happen? It's because they succumb to that one temptation that gave rise to another temptation. 
If you've done it once, what's the harm in doing it again? Especially in the same day or the same weekend. And it's the same thing with sins, dear brothers and sisters. A person's nefs, their ego, or shaitan tells them, just do this one sin. Just fulfill this one haram, sinful craving you have. And once you get it out of your system, it'll be okay. You'll go back onto the straight path. But this is a trap of the ego. It's a trap of shaitan. Because we know that one sin leads to another. And that leads to another. And eventually the person is falling off the path of righteousness. That is the reality. Now, one of the great imams and poets, Imam al-Busayri, rahimahullah, he mentions this in his qasida. He says, فَلَا تَرُمْ بِالْمَعَاصِي كَسْرَ شَهْوَتِهَا إِنَّ الطَّعَامَ يُقَوِّ شَهْوَةَ النَّهِمِ He says, do not try to break unlawful desires by satisfying them. Don't try to break that haram desire by succumbing to the desire, thinking you're going to crave it and get it out of your system. He says, no, because food only increases a glutton's desires. It only makes it worse. That's the reality. So one thing leads to the other, and that leads to khudlan. During the Battle of Uhud, after the Muslims were routed by the second wave of the forces of Khalid bin Walid, chaos spread in the ranks of the Muslim fighters, and several of them fled the battle scene. They fled the battlefield going to their different tribal areas. Some went back to the city of Medina itself. And after the battle of Uhud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse speaking about those individuals who fled the battle. He says, He says, those who fled on the day when the two armies met were made to slip by shaitan due to some of the sins that they had earned beforehand due to some of the sins they did before the battle. So Allah Ta'ala is telling them and telling us that the reason for that sin of fleeing the battlefield was actually because of a previous sin that each of them had done. Because one sin gives rise to the other. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is what leads to khudlan being forsaken unless you arrest it and stop it and get back on track. This is the reason for istidraj and khudlan is because sins become habitual. And alhamdulillah, it's also the same for tawfiq. Tawfiq is that increase in good after good. Because one good deed gives rise to another good deed. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala affirms that in the Quran when he says, Yahdihim rabbuhum bi-imanihim. Their Lord guides them due to their prior iman. So the prior iman, that prior good, is the means by which they are guided to further good. So this is the way, dear brothers and sisters, of attaining tawfiq and avoiding this istidraj, being lured to destruction gradually or being forsaken. It is to not let one sin give rise to the other. To stop it in its tracks. If we've fallen off, get back up. And don't let one sin lead to the other and then to the other taking us down this dark route. If we get back up and do more good and we make tawbah to Allah Ta'ala 
That one good gives rise to another good, and then to another. And then inshallah, we are on the path of tawfiq, the path of divine success. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of us tawfiq, and not allow us to succumb to this istidraj, or khudlan, or imhal, and any loss of tawfiq. Ameen. Allahumma wafiqna lima tuhibbuhu wa tardah, waj'alna min abidika su'ada. Ameen. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. اللهم صل وسلم على اللهم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيك ما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاه والسلام الاتمان الاكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم وبعد dear brothers and sisters the word tawfiq divine success, enabling grace, in the meaning that we have explained it in, appears only once in the Qur'an. The word tawfiq appears in a number of places in the Qur'an, but in this particular meaning that we are using as divine success, it appears only once in the Qur'an upon the tongue of Prophet Shu'aib salam, who says, وَمَا تَوْفِيقِ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ my tawfiq is only by Allah, only from Allah. And some of the ulama say that the reason why that meaning of tawfiq only appears once in the Qur'an is because that form of tawfiq is very rare. Dear brothers and sisters, the actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are wise. Allah is al-hakim. He makes no mistakes. All of his actions are with hikmah, with wisdom. So a person may ask, why does Allah Ta'ala give guidance to this person while this one is misguided? Why is this one favored and this one is not favored? And the answer, dear brothers and sisters, is that none of that is arbitrary and without reason. As Muslims, we don't believe in sutfah. We don't believe in this thing called coincidence. Because everything happens for a reason. Everything can be traced through a causal chain that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set in motion. I'll give you one example. Everything is linked together. Consider Fulan, some anonymous person, so and so. They immigrate from their country of origin. Why did they do that? Perhaps they immigrated because of problems in their country. Then the question is, why does their country have problems? And suppose we say the country has problems because of great poverty. The next question is, why does it have poverty? And perhaps the answer is, it has poverty and suffering because of political corruption. The next question then becomes, why does it suffer from political corruption? And the answer would be, it suffers from political corruption due to the condition of the souls of the hakim and the mahkum, and as a consequence of sins. And because of the sins, it affects the state of souls, which affects the state of governance, which affects the society, which affects the lives of people, pushing some people to need to leave because of the poverty and the problems there. So everything is linked. So let's look at a story 
that shows how things are linked together. A picture, if you will, of tawfiq. Because tawfiq doesn't appear suddenly overnight. There are things before it that lead to it. Let's look at the story of al-Sahabi al-Jaleel, Sayyiduna Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. After years of calling people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Mecca, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had to deal with the antagonism of Umar before his Islam. And Umar reached a stage where he wanted to take things into his own hands. So one day, out of anger, he took his sword and he went out to go seek the Prophet wasallam. And on his way there, he met a man named Nu'aym ibn Abdullah al-Nahab. Now Nu'aym was a secret Muslim. Umar didn't know he was a Muslim. Nu'aym sees him with this angry look on his face, with a sword in his hand, and he asks him, what's going on, Umar? And Umar says, we have been cursed far too long. Our ancestors have been ridiculed. I am going to kill Muhammad. This is what he says. So Nu'aym recognizes the sensitivity of the moment. What can he say or do to divert him so that that doesn't happen? And Nu'aym, the secret Muslim, says to him, do you really think that your tribesmen will allow you to live if you kill one of their own? Shall I not tell you of something more extraordinary? A'jab min hadha. Your own sister and her husband, Sa'id bin Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail, have become Muslim and they follow him. So now Umar realizes this has affected his family and he's enraged. So instead of going to the Prophet ﷺ, he decides to go to his sister's house. Now, as he was going to the house, as they were in the house, it was his sister and her husband, but there was another person in the house. His name was Khabbab, and he was there teaching them Surah Taha, teaching them the verses of Surah Taha. So Umar anhu, and we say anhu now, but in that stage he wasn't yet a Muslim. Umar anhu gets to the house, and they realize he's outside. Khabbab goes and hides inside of a closet space. And his, his, his sister takes the parchment of Surah Taha, and she hides it under her thigh. Omar comes in and he asks, what is that murmuring I heard? He heard Khabbab reciting Surah Taha. He didn't see him when he walked in. He said, where is that murmuring coming from? Who is that person? And they said, oh no, we're just talking, we're just chatting. And then Omar says, perhaps you have left the religion of our forefathers. So his brother-in-law, Saeed, says, well, what if the truth were in a religion other than yours? Umar anhu was already filled with anger. And at that moment, he pounced on Saeed and began beating him. And his sister tried to pull him off of her husband. But he then struck his own sister, causing her face to bleed. And then they said, yes, we have become Muslims. And we believe in Allah and His Messenger and what Allah revealed to him. So do whatever you want at this stage. We're not going to hide this anymore. So he started to feel a bit of regret for having struck his sister. And so he asked her the question that would change his life. Allow me to read that parchment. Let me read that parchment that you have there. But his sister said, no, you are nejis. You are 
impure due to your shirk. And so Omar went and washed himself up a little bit and she gave him the parchment and he began to recite from Surah Taha. Taha. And this began to move him. The seeds of Iman were there beginning to sprout. And he was so moved by this chapter that he said, I felt the greatness of this in my heart and I wept and said to myself, is this what Quraysh have fled from? At that moment, he asked his sister to take him directly to the Prophet ﷺ. But she made him swear that if he goes to see him, that he would not curse him and harm him. And he agreed to that, of course. And so they go, as they're about to go, Khabbab comes out of the closet. And he says, Abshir, glad tidings to you. I hope that you are the one by whom Allah gives victory and strength to Islam. And so they take him to Dar al-Arqam where the Prophet ﷺ was along with some of the other Sahaba. And when he arrived and knocked on the door, they looked out and they saw it was Umar. And they knew that what he was up to. They knew his antagonism before this. But he was still a man who loved justice and loved and disliked wrong. He comes to the door. His sword is still in his hand. And Sayyidina Hamza radiallahu anhu, he was inside and he said, open the door. If he has come for a benefit, then we'll give him a benefit. If he's come for some other thing, intending evil, then we will deal with him. And so they opened the door. As they opened the door, the Prophet wasallam grabs Umar from his cloak and drags him forward, causing him to fall onto his knees. And he chastises him for his past behaviors and warns him of divine punishment. And at that stage, Umar radiallahu anhu says, Ya Rasulallah, no longer Muhammad this, Muhammad that. Ya Rasulallah, O Messenger of Allah, I have come to express my belief in Allah and in you as Rasulullah and what Allah has sent to you. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says, Allahumma, O Allah, here is Umar. O oh Allah, strengthen Islam with Umar bin Khattab and guide him. And he embraced Islam there, upon which the Prophet ﷺ began to utter the takbir loudly in Mecca. Umar radiallahu anhu was 26 years old at the time. 26 years old. He was a person whom Allah guided. And in his youth, he loved truth and justice. He was astray for a period of time. He was misled for a while, but the seeds of Iman were there. That love of truth and justice was there beforehand. Allah gave him tawfiq, dear brothers and sisters. Another example of tawfiq is in the life of the great Imam Muhyiddin Abu Zakariya Yahya ibn Sharaf and Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, who was born in the year 631 after Hijrah in the Syrian town of Nawa. Imam al-Nawawi, every Muslim knows about Imam al-Nawawi. Everyone has heard of this name. Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, was born into a very modest family with no ties to wealth, no ties to scholarship or anything of that matter. And he, from his very early days of youth, was extraordinary. He had a singular focus and was not like most other children. He was not attracted to playing. 
outside with kids. It is said by his student Ibn Attar in his biography of the Imam that as kids were outside playing, they would sometimes try to force him to play while he's memorizing the Quran outside with them. And as they're pressuring him to join them and play, he will begin to cry because he felt that he was created for something else. There's something else he has to focus on. You know, what child cries because they feel like they feel they're going to waste their time? Children cry often when they're not able to waste time. He's crying because he's afraid he's going to waste his time. So he's very special from the, er the early stage of his life. His purpose was set from the very beginning. And at the age of 18, his biographer, his student Ibn Attar mentions, at the age of 18, his father took him to the city of Damascus to study. And there he mastered the Shafi'i school of law and memorized its major text. And eventually he settled in a school known as Al-Madrasat Al-Rawahiyyah. And he was given a small room in this school. And he stayed in that school, in that small room for many years until eventually he was named as the head of Jam' al-Ashrafiyya or this Ashrafiyya school. And it is said by his biographer that he would attend 12 lessons daily studying Arabic and Hadith and Fiqh and Usul and Tafsir and so on. At the age of 24, he began teaching at the Ashrafiyya. And it is said that he would only sleep when sleep overcame him. And when he fell asleep, it would be with his face on top of his books. The late scholar of Syria, Sheikh Ali al-Diqr says about Imam al-Nawawi that he used to have 12 study sessions a day with his teachers. These included explanations and verifications and commentaries and explaining difficult aspects and expressions and dabtul al-fad, fixing the proper wordings of names and places and so on. And this would take at least 12 hours a day, he said. Think about it, one class takes about an hour. He's taking 12 classes a day. It's about 12 hours a day. But he doesn't just take the classes and go home, go to his room. He also memorizes everything that he studies. And he reviews everything he studies. So if you add 12 hours of study to the hours of review, it's almost 24 hours a day in studying the deen. So it is said by Imam Ali al-Dakhr rahimahullah that Allah gave him the ability to complete in one day what it would take another person two days to complete. And he will complete in one year what another person would take two years or more to complete. That's the only way you can explain it. And Allah Ta'ala made him a great imam in the deen. And he spent around 15 years doing this. And he wrote works that are still studied till today. And he died at the age of 44. 44 years old. That is a life of tawfiq, dear brothers and sisters. Allah gave him tawfiq from the beginning to the end. And there are many examples of this. So how do we get tawfiq, dear brothers and sisters? How do we avoid khudlan? We ask Allah Ta'ala for it. And we try to avoid the sins. And if we fall into the sins, we get back up and we stop it. We cut them out. And if we do good, we use that to do another good. And then another good. And we try to maintain consistency as that is the sign of tawfiq. And lastly, we have to ask Allah for tawfiq. We have to ask Allah for it. As we mentioned in the hadith of Sayyidah Fatima radiallahu anha, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa taught her to say every morning and every evening the dua 
يا حي يا قيوم برحمتك استغيث اصلح لي شاني كله ولا تكلني الى نفسي طرفه عين او الله او living and self subsistent in your mercy do i seek help rectify my affair and do not entrust me to myself for even the blinking of an eye if allah does not entrust us to ourselves he gives us tawfiq if he gives us tawfiq he opens the doors of good may allah open those doors for all of us may he open the doors of tawfiq may he close the doors of istidraj and khudlan and imhal and all of these things that block us from the path amin ya rabbil alamin rabbana atina fid dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adhab an-nar اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد عبدك ورسولك النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا بقدر عظمة ذاتك في كل وقت وحين سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين